Well, please turn back to that uh, passage in Matthew chapter, sorry, Matthew, Luke chapter 14. And as you do that, if you're in the Fusion and JF uh, groups, there is a handout for you. If you haven't got a copy, please put your hand up and we'll make sure one is brought to you. We'll help you uh, follow through the message that is to come. Everybody got a copy of that? Good. Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your words, the words of Jesus. And we pray that you would help us by your spirit to understand them, to heed them, uh, and to respond to them in the way that you want us to. Please, Lord, may we not be those who simply look in the mirror and go away and forget about it, but those who take what you say supremely seriously. Come by your spirit and help us, we pray. Amen. Now, Fusion children, it's great to have you with us here this morning. But I warn you and your parents that what I'm about to read is something that is really shocking. So shocking we could hardly believe that Jesus would say something like this. I'm going to move this because I can't see folk over there. Thank you. So shocking. Jesus said these words and they were read to us just a few minutes ago. If anyone comes after me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Hate your mum and dad, your brothers and sisters. Well, you might get hacked off and annoyed with them at times, but hate is very strong, isn't it? Such a strong word, such a strong emotion. How could Jesus possibly have said these words? When we think about it, it's shocking. It's the kind of thing that we, we could imagine on the lips of uh, a terrorist leader who's trying to recruit a young man to be a suicide bomber. Hate your parents. Live for the cause. It's shocking. It's also rather embarrassing. How can you square these words with a Jesus whose message is of love and forgiveness and peace. Thirdly, it seems contradictory because God, Jesus' Father, has already given the Ten Commandments and the fifth of those says, love, honour your parents. And Jesus all the time is telling us to love one another. So what's going on here? How could he have said something like this? Indeed, does he really mean what he means? Why on earth did he say it? Well, when we come to the Bible, it's always important. In fact, it's so important that we always read it in its context. Otherwise, you can make it say things that it's not actually saying. So let's remind ourselves of the situation, the context in which Jesus said these words. It might help us to understand just what he's getting at here and the point that he's making. Now, in this part of Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a journey. Luke is tracing that journey for us. It's a long journey to a town called Jerusalem. Chapter 13 sees the start of that journey. Chapter 23 sees the end of the journey, and it ends with his death by crucifixion. And throughout 
this journey, and indeed before the journey, but especially throughout the journey, Jesus has time and time again said to his followers, to his disciples, how the journey is going to end. But they were so bewildered by it, they just couldn't get their mind around it. What's more, he'd said to them, look, if you're going to follow me, you too are going to have to walk the Calvary Road, just as I'm walking the Calvary Road. If you're going to be a disciple of me, a follower of me, this is what it entails. Now, at the same time, on this journey, he's been talking to them about his kingdom. He is a king. He's come to establish a kingdom. And through that kingdom, he's going to do something remarkable and wonderful. He's going to populate that kingdom with people from every nation upon the face of the earth, every ethnic background, all ages. They're going to come into this kingdom. But they too will have to follow the Calvary road. And we heard a little bit about that last Sunday. And in the opening part of Luke 14, Jesus particularly talks about what's beyond the journey. He talks about the banquet that will herald the new heaven, the new earth, that will be the destiny and the climax of his great work. And he speaks about this banquet. That's what we thought about last week. A banquet that is, in fact, open to everybody. Anybody can come in to his banquet. It's completely free. The host has provided everything at no cost whatsoever to the guests. But, amazingly, tragically, as we see last week, not everybody will answer his call to the banquet or take up his invitation. Indeed, there are those who resolutely, determinedly won't come. They're too proud to come. They won't come Jesus' way. They'll come their own way, they think. There are those who are distracted by all the things that are going on in their life. And they make excuses. But the bottom line is, they won't come to the banquet. Too proud, too distracted with other things. No wish to be part of this kingdom. And they pile excuse upon excuse upon excuse. Yet, as we saw last week, there's a second group that will answer the invitation of Jesus, that will follow him on the Calvary Road, that will end up in his banquet. They're described in verse 21 as the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. These people, you see, are in no doubt whatsoever about their desperate need and their incapability to make themselves fit to be asked to this banquet. But being invited, they readily accept. They can't wait to come. Now, that's the context. It's that context of people refusing and rejecting or accepting and coming to Jesus that Jesus says these words about the cost of discipleship. You see... He knows, and this part that we've come to in verse 25, he knows that the crowds that are following him are fickle. That lots of them will actually, within weeks, fall away from following him. So many of them are there for the wrong reasons. If this point in time you'd ask them, are you a follower of Jesus? Yeah, I'm here, aren't I? 
They would think that they are a follower. They would think they are a disciple. But Jesus knows otherwise. He knows that when the going gets tough, they will evaporate like the morning mist, never to be seen again. And so it's in that context that he issues this challenge. He says, look, before you jump to say that you're a follower of me, count the cost. It's interesting, isn't it? That this congregation this morning, this crowd, that's what the word congregation means, is also made up of both groups of people. The first group are intrigued by Christ. They're attracted to his words. They, they love the wisdom and his kindness. In fact, we all start off in that group. But then when they begin to understand the cost of following Jesus, they won't stay. They can't stay. And sooner or later, they're off. And Jesus pulls no punches, does he? He uses very strong imagery. He's saying, look, the call to follow me is not an invitation to tag along. It's not an invitation to be a Sunday Christian. It's not to drift in and drift out just as you feel the need. No. It's a total call for total priority. It's to put me first, he says, in your life. That's what's going on here in this passage. And he puts his finger upon three things that are most likely to prevent people from following him. Three things that are going to prove too costly for them to give up for him. The first in verse 26 is family, where he speaks these strange words of contrast. The second is in verse 27, and it's the love of self. And the third, in verse 33, when he talks about giving up everything, is a reference to materialism, the stuff of our life. And he says... Any one of these three can prevent you from following me. Will prevent you being at my banquet. If you love your family, if you love yourself, if you love the things of this world more than me, if they take first place in your priorities, you cannot be my disciple. He couldn't be clearer, could he? He says it three times. Did you notice when Peter read that very helpfully for us? Three times Jesus says it. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. You cannot be my disciple. He wants them and he wants us to be clear upon this matter. So wherever we are this morning, whatever group we might place ourselves in, in terms of relationship with Jesus or not, let's look a little bit more closely at these three things that might keep us from following Jesus. The first one is family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Does Jesus really mean hate? Well, the Bible often uses a contrast of love and hate to make a point, to express a preference. If you love something so much, by contrast, it seems that you hate that. Remember, he's talking about discipleship, about following him. He's talking about a primary loyalty to himself. 
And all that he's doing is these Jewish people that made up the crowd would clearly understand all he's doing is highlighting the cost of following him. In a way, he's reiterating the first command. You shall have no other gods before me. Now clearly understand this. Jesus is not anti-family. After all, it was his idea. Nor is he advocating hatred. This is the man who calls his followers to love his enemies, to good to those who harm him. This is the one who gave us the fifth commandment, to honor our parents, our mother and father. Now the point he's making here is simply this. He must take priority even over the best things in life. Now these words seem very harsh to us Western ears and our culture. But we've got to think about this context and we've got to think about the world that we live in a bit. They wouldn't have seemed strange to those people at all. They would have understood very clearly that to follow this carpenter from Nazareth, to be a disciple of him, was going to incur the wrath of your community. You were going to be put out. You were potentially going to be alienated from your family and disowned by them because you were stepping out of the culture and of the religious way to follow this man. They would have understood that, what he was getting at very clearly. In many parts of the world today, where there are strongly religious cultures and nations and communities, be they Jewish or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist, to follow Christ can often be at the cost of alienation from your family, of a breakdown of family relationships. Jesus is not saying you've got to go and do it, but what he's saying is your family will reject you. That's what's happening all around the world today. There is a price to be paid. To follow Christ might well be at the cost of family relationships. Even here in the UK it happens. I knew a Jewish man a few years back. When he was younger, he was going to get baptised. And on the eve of his baptism, on the Saturday night, his father rang him up and said, if you go through with that baptism tomorrow, you're as good as dead to me. You are no longer my son. You see, these are realities. They seem odd to us. But in a religious culture, where it seems that to follow Jesus, you're rejecting everything about your family and about that religion, it leads to this. If you trust Christ, there may well be a cost at home, whether you're from a religious background or not. So says Jesus, count the cost. This morning when we end, we're going to sing a lovely hymn called Jesus, I My Cross Have Taken. Written by the man who gave us that great hymn, Abide With Me, Henry Light. Henry Light heard the story of a wealthy young heiress in the 19th century who became a Christian. And in becoming a Christian, she was disowned and disinherited by her father. It gives a very added poignance to the hymn. Think what spirit dwells within you 
What a father loves you yet. What a savior died to win you. Child of heaven, why should you fret? There's a choice to be made. Following Christ is costly. And it will affect family relationships. Now whether it will or not in your circumstances depends on your circumstance. But there's a second thing here that Jesus puts his finger on that will definitely affect every single one of us and it's the matter of self. In verse 27, Jesus turns from the family to the individual and the problem of self and he describes discipleship in terms of self-denial or carrying our cross. Now, in the first century world, when you saw a man carrying his cross, the one thing you knew about that man is that he was as good as dead. He was as good as dead. And Jesus takes that picture to drive home that the point that following him to follow the Calvary Road will inevitably be at the cost of self and self-denial. Now, as we know, we live in a culture that's absolutely obsessed with self. Daily bombards us with the importance of me. And it finds a lodging place in our hearts because we love ourselves. We're instinctively me-centered, whether we're a child in fusion or whether we're in old age. Something happens, we say, hmm, how's this going to affect me? What do people think of me? How can I manipulate this situation for my benefit? If you're not aware of your capacity for self then can I respectfully suggest that you don't really know yourself at all by nature I Trevor Archer am the most important person in my life and it's the same for every single one of us that's how we are we're slaves to it some years ago there was a song I love me and don't you forget it I love me and don't you forget it. I love me and don't you forget it. I love me and don't you forget it, baby. The older ones amongst us may remember it. We'd probably prefer to forget it. The younger ones wish they'd never heard it. But that's us. I love me. That's how we are. And into our life comes this colossus of history. The Lord Jesus Christ, our maker and creator. And he stands before us and he lays claim to us because he's got all the authority in the world and he says, I've made you to follow me. To follow me. Put yourself under my authority, my leadership. Orientate your life around my priorities, my agenda, Follow my example. I did not come to be served, but to serve other people. I gave my life away. That's what my disciples do. It's totally anti our natural old nature. But the spirit of Jesus turns that inside out and begins to enable a person to think about 
other people in sacrificial ways for the first time in their life. It's a miracle of God's grace. And Jesus' call comes as it did to these first disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, must take up their cross and follow me. It's not an option. It's basic first level discipleship. A call to inconvenience and sacrifice to Christ and his cause to other person centeredness rather than self-centeredness. To have a mindset that wants to serve other people rather than have them serve me. Friends, that's a lifetime process. It was for the disciples. It has been for every Christian ever since. But if you're a follower of Jesus, that process is taking place actively in your life every day as you are faced with choices, whether to go Jesus' way, the way of the cross, or to go your own way. Family, self, and then one more idol that would keep us from following Christ. Jesus tells this strange story, doesn't he? Or two of them, actually. It's all around the material things of life. In verse 33, Jesus calls us to give up everything we have to be his disciple. Now remember, read it in context. Think about all the other things that Jesus said about material things. The Bible is not anti-material things. God has made us material human beings. We have a body. We have appetites. He's wired us up. He's set us in a world that is wonderfully sustained and created to sustain our lives. God gives us all things richly to enjoy. They are gifts from a supremely good creator that he lavishes down upon all people. There's nothing wrong with material things. Jesus is not knocking material things. He has given them. But it would be a strange person, wouldn't it, if you were given a gift, if you just spent the whole time saying, oh, what a gift, what, oh, this is an astonishing gift. Oh, let me go and play with it. And you never stop. That would be weird, wouldn't it? You never stop and thank the giver. No, it's not the gift that ultimately matters, is it? It's the giver. It's what Jesus is putting his finger on here. If you do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple, he says in verse 33. And he tells two parables, one about a building project and the other about avoiding a war. Rather strange. Easy enough to understand, but what's he getting at? Sit down, count the cost, decide whether you can afford to build. For 20 odd years of my life, I was involved in the construction industry. One thing I learned very early on, and I keep telling people like a mantra, that any building project will be far messier than you ever thought, it will take far longer than you ever thought, and it will cost you far more than you ever thought. So make sure you've got the wherewithal to finish it. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then this other thing about this king. He's got 10,000 men in his army. That's pretty impressive. But he hears there's another king coming for him with 20,000. Two to one. That doesn't sound fair. What's he going to do? He's going to sue for peace if he can. What's he getting at in these parables? Well, in the first one, the parable of the tower, 
What I think he's saying is this. Sit down and work out whether you are prepared to pay the price of following me. He doesn't want easy believism. He doesn't want quick-fixed disciples. He wants men, women, boys and girls who've sat down, waded up, and said, no, I'm going to pay the cost, whatever it might be, with your help, and follow you. He doesn't want people who can't afford to follow him. But in the second one, the second parable about the war, I think he's saying this. Sit down and work out whether you can afford to refuse my demands. I am, after all, the king. I am that one who's coming with a much mightier army. Do you see the point he's making? You are free to choose whether to follow him or not. Consider it carefully. Examine it carefully. Christianity invites us to look at the evidence. Examine it. It's a historical faith rooted in history. Don't rush into following Jesus. Understand who he is. But in understanding who he is, you will come to understand that he is the king. He's the king with the most powerful army in the world. He is the king of kings and you can't afford not to be following him. But it's never going to be a comfortable option. And so he puts his finger on those three things. Isn't it interesting? Family, self, materialism. And if we won't follow him, you know what will happen? Those good things will become idols. They'll be the one we follow. Bob Dylan sang it, you've got to serve somebody. That's what Jesus is saying here. And if you won't serve him, you'll end up serving the family. Your family will become an idol. You'll end up serving yourself. And that's very narcissistic. You'll end up living for things and you'll find they are empty that's the reality but you have to choose whether you're going to go that way or his way we are made to worship you see if we won't live for Christ we will live for something else there's no third way here this is just we are worshipping creatures We'll either worship the God who made us and loved us or we'll worship somebody or something else. But know this. If we choose to follow family, self, materialism, it will end in disaster. Your idols will always mock you. They seem so preferable to following Christ. But in the end, they, they won't deliver. They can't deliver because you are made by God for God. And another person, another thing cannot fill that vacuum. Only God can. That's what he's made you for, relationship with himself. And if you won't have that, then you're at war with your creator. And I want to remind you, he's a powerful king. He is the one with all authority in all the world, the ruler of time and history. He has all the time in the world. 
we only have the brief time we have here on earth to make the choice to follow him. Do the sum, says Jesus. Think deeply about this. But remember, God has stepped into our world. He has revealed himself. A young lady at the Globe Church I heard about a couple of weeks ago, she came upon a Christianity Explore courses we run there. She was highly contentious about everything. The guy who led the group was despairing, especially the resurrection. And in the end, he said to her, you know, look at the evidence. Is it that you can't believe it? Or is it that you won't believe it? A week later, she wrote an email to John T. Alcock. I've become a Christian. I realize that what was said to me was absolutely true. It's not the lack of evidence. I was convicted that it was true. I didn't want Jesus to be my boss. That was my problem. But thank God he's had mercy upon me. And now I'm following him. That's what happens. But the question I've sought to grapple with this week is this. Given that Christ calls me to deny myself, to put him first, to pay such a price, why would I do that? And I think there's only one answer in the Bible and it's hearing Luke's gospel again. We put him first because he is first. We don't make him first, he's already first. What we have the choice to do is make him first in our lives. We follow him because he is the king. He's the king who laid aside his glory and came into this troubled, broken world in order that people like you and I who instinctively grab all the gifts but shun the giver might be forgiven, might be restored, might be brought to his banquet. And when we begin to see that's what it's about, that's what he's done, well, it begins to thrill our soul. It begins to overwhelm us. That this king laid aside all his glory, glory that's unimaginable to us, in order to come and save people like you and I and bring them into his family and call us to follow him. To think that this king loved me so much that he was ready to pay the price for my sinful selfishness, my arrogant foolishness. There's nobody like him. Why would I do it? Because he is altogether beautiful. There is nobody like him in all the world. And the closer you get, the more marvelous he becomes. Family is great, but it must come a distant second to the Lord Jesus. Money is great, but as the Beatles sang, it can't buy you love, and it certainly can't buy you this love, the love of Christ. No, this love, you see, comes at no cost to us, but an overwhelming cost to God himself. So the call of Christ comes as it does to those first people, those crowds there in Luke 14. It comes to us today. And it says, 
you follow me. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not yet a follower of Jesus. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do I become a follower of Jesus? Well, let me, let me express it this way. This Friday, God willing, Val and I are going for a helicopter ride over London. It hasn't, this is a wonderful thing, it hasn't cost us a penny to go in this helicopter. It's been bought for us by our family to celebrate my 21st birthday. <laughs> You're with me. It's a birthday present for our, from our children. I have been to check the insurance policy. But you know, at 3.40 on Friday afternoon, Val and I have got to do something. We've got to entrust our life to the pilot. The moment we get on board and the door closes and the rotor blades begin, at that point, our life is in his hands. That's what it is to become a Christian, isn't it? There's nothing we can do to buy it. It's a gift. It's a gift. And Jesus, the pilot of our life, invites us to get on board his flight to change the metaphor. To take his journey through life with him to a destination which eye has not seen nor ear heard the things the Lord has prepared for those who love him. This world is a brilliant place in so many ways, isn't it? I know it's fouled up, I know it's messed up, I know there's so much tragedy and suffering. But still, the beauty of creation and the wonder of human relationships and the goodness of gifts grin through to us from time to time. And the Bible says those things have now been spoiled and messed up. But they are a signpost to something even better when God comes to renew it all and eradicates all the things that mess up the world, namely sin and death. That's the hope of the Christian. And Jesus says to us, weigh the cost up. Do your sums. Come, follow me. And once you see Jesus in all his love, in all his beauty, in all his grace, in all his mercy, then surely you're spoilt for everything else, aren't you? Like the apostles of old who, as the crowds evaporated, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, what about you? Are you going? Are you going to leave as well? And for once they gave a brilliant reply. Lord, where can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're not leaving you, Jesus. We're going to follow. Christian here. Jesus is not in the business of having adherents or admirers or a fan club. Indeed, in Revelation, he warns in the strongest language possible, doesn't he, that he hates lukewarmness. It causes him to vomit, says the Bible. No, he's in the business of calling men, women, boys and girls to himself, to wholehearted devotion. Christian here this morning, what's the Lord calling you to, particularly in your life this morning? What are the challenges there where 
family, self, materialism comes up against the claim of Christ. Are you going to make the right choice? The proof that you're a disciple is that you pay the price and make the right cost, make the right choice. Nobody does that has ever regretted it. Let's pray. Father, enable us to count the costs this morning. Perhaps for some of us here for the first time in our lives and having waded up to follow Christ. And if we're Christians, help us to recount the cost every, every day this week and continue hard after Christ because there's no other one worth serving, no other love so great, no other master so good. No other way into the banquet, into the great banquet, than to follow him. Follow him. Lord, may that be the watchword of our lives, we pray. Amen.